Medical journalists have the difficult task of using their expertise to sort out the endless studies, reports, cures, to disseminate accurate medical information. What are some of the challenges and opportunities for medical journalists today? You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today in the studio is Dr. Sarah Lovinger. She is an internist who practices for the Lake County Health Department in Illinois and also works as a medical journalist and has published over 70 articles in numerous medical trade journals, including Internal Medicine News and Internal Medicine World Report. Dr. Lovinger, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Sarah, what's one of the more interesting stories that you've recently written that you can kind of come up with? I had the opportunity to interview the internal medicine residency director at Tulane, Dr. Jeffrey Weiss, and he was in charge of the internal medicine residency program when Katrina hit. And he immediately devised a method to not only cope with the aftermath of Katrina and help his internal medicine residents help the people who were stranded in New Orleans, but he also kept his residency program together when, for the next six months, his residents were scattered at different hospitals in that region of the country. And he did a great job not only um, helping the residents learn the basics of what a second-year internal medicine resident needs to know wherever they are, but to cope emotionally with what would have been a trauma. And it was obviously not planned. How did he keep an entire residency program going with uh, all that chaos? Uh, His residents, within the first couple weeks after they were able to get out, they went to a nearby hospital in Louisiana. Some of them went to Houston. And some of them went back to their home medical schools and um, were, you know, taken in by their home medical schools and, and did their training and until they could come back to New Orleans, I think, six months later. But Dr. Weiss would drive from New Orleans to Houston to Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, every week. And he would meet with his residents in Houston, then meet with his residents in Shreveport for a couple days, and then come back and meet with his residents and take care of things at home. He said he drove 30,000 miles in six months, and he drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> Can I imagine? He sounds like a very dedicated man, so probably an interesting story to do. That, it, that was a great story. You know, what happened to the patients in New Orleans? I mean, uh, everybody left the city, so when the residents came back, did they have anybody to treat? By the time the residents came back in the winter, people were starting to come back, and so there's a need for residents and for health care. So did you have to do any specific kind of research for that story, or was it really just being there and talking to this doctor and uh, talking to the residents? This particular story, which will appear in the ACP Hospitalist in September, it was a question and answer story. And I interviewed Dr. Weiss on the phone, and the research that I did involved reading about the residency program on the Tulane website. So you weren't there trudging around in the in the waters? No. No, I, I haven't been to New Orleans in a long time. Uh, do you have any controversial stories coming up or ones that you've written recently that you can remember? Oh, sure. I'm always looking for controversy. I recently wrote about the fact that women physicians make less than male physicians and that um, women physicians have less career advancement than male physicians do. I mean, is that unique to uh, medicine? I mean, it seems like all throughout the business world, women are historically paid less. No, it's not unique to medicine, but 
it is maybe not talked about all that much, though maybe sort of obvious if you look around. Well, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that pop in my head, which I'm not going to say, but you know, most of the, the female physicians I work with get paid a lot of money. They basically get paid for what they produce. I can see if you're working as an employee and if you're a part-time physician, I could see how women are taken advantage of more because they do like the part-timeness. So, yes, I can see how it's a controversial subject, and uh, we don't have to figure it out here. Um, what's been your most important story that you've been working on? I really like writing about emerging infections. And one of the topics, areas that I want to really get into is medicine and the environment. I am currently working on a story which is a little bit more geared to the popular press, than to the medical physician audience on global warming and health, and particularly how global warming could really increase infectious disease outbreaks, um, not only in the underdeveloped world, but here in North America. So you've piqued my curiosity. Uh, what have you uncovered in your research that would pose a risk to us here, let's say, in the Chicagoland area? Well, there are definitely uh, epidemiologists who think that West Nile virus is more prevalent because of changes in weather patterns. Certainly, Lyme disease could, if the deer that carry the tick responsible for Lyme disease, if their breeding patterns change as the climate changes, they may encroach more on areas like Chicago. You know, we haven't really had malaria in Chicago, but malaria might be making a comeback in the southeast. It's something to look forward to. <laughs> if you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking today with Dr. Sarah Lovinger, who is both a practicing internist and a medical journalist. We're talking about her life and career as uh, living a dual life as an internist and a medical journalist. Sarah, how has blogging affected medical journalism? Has it cut into your field at all, or is it just an, a nice way of... Uh, adding to it? Well, it hasn't cut into my field. And a lot of the publications that I've written for have been a little slow to jump into the whole blogosphere. I have participated in enough blogs and chat rooms for doctors to know that there are a lot of frustrated and even angry doctors out there. And I actually think the doctors that I've chatted with online um, need more and more outlets. Right. They need we, more of a voice. We're thinking of developing a show here called The Rant, where we'll have doctors call in and really just uh, vent for 20 minutes whatever's on their mind and get it off their chests because only other physicians are going to be the only ones that will uh, have any sort of empathy for them. I don't think the, the lay public's going to care at all about what a doctor complains about or understand it. So, yeah, I definitely think there's more room for us to get our complaints out and heard. How do you think that medical journalism can actually improve the healthcare system? Have you have you had any articles that have actually had some major impact? I've tried to write about issues that are very topical, and I've tried to make people aware of important policy developments. Even though I may have my own personal political biases, I do try to explore both sides of an issue, or all three sides. If there's you know if there are many sides to an issue. As to whether I've had any impact, I don't know if I've changed health policy. I, I think the greatest impact that, you know, in a democracy that you can have is legislative. And uh, 
we haven't had a lot of legislative changes in the last eight years, but that may be that may be in the future. I've written about things like influenza surveillance, which I think is really important, food outbreak surveillance, which I think is really important. I've written about Medicare D. I've written about smallpox outbreaks. I, I did an, an article on a little-known subject that I think is incredibly important. That's publication bias. There's a lot of that. Yeah. You know, how do you get your story straight? I mean, if there's two or three or four sides to the story, how do you know you're getting it right? I don't know if there's a right and wrong. I mean, you know, with a, a number of topics, you sort of have two points of view. For example, I wrote about Gardasil vaccine, the new vaccine against HPV, and it's controversial because... The girls for whom it's indicated are so young, and they're generally not sexually active. And so it's sometimes even a hard topic for pediatricians to approach with parents. You know, sort of the issue there is, is this a good idea? Or are these girls too young, you know, to get this vaccine and to be, you know, so it's not that hard to get people to sort of take one side or the other. And maybe, you know, you could scientifically, you can say, well, yes, if you vaccinate girls between 11 and 12, then there'll be this much of a drop-off down the road in the rate of cervical cancer. On the other hand, if somebody says, but if you vaccinate a 12-year-old girl against a sexually transmitted disease, you're involving the idea of sexuality way too young, and that's going to make those girls more likely to be sexually active at a very young age. Well, that's harder to prove. Right. None of those studies have ever panned out. You know, you try to bring up the points that people make that maybe are important or valid or common points, and then you try to see if there's research that backs it up or not. But there's nothing wrong with saying, well, this has never been. Just as much as you could bring in a study from an important journal that backs up a point, you could also say, well, this has never been proven, or I couldn't find a study to back up this point. Sarah, what do you do with your, your personal bias? You're writing the article. You can put in whatever you want into the article. You have a young daughter, an eight-year-old. Uh, at home. You must have some personal opinions on the particular vaccine. How do you keep those out of your article? Or do you put them in? That's a difficult line to walk. I would say that when I'm writing an individual article, my personal bias doesn't play as big of a, a role as whether or not I choose to write the article in general. So just to cover a topic in general, it has to seem interesting to me. What do you think of ReachMD? I mean, we're a pretty new station and a different way of transmitting information to the physician. Do you think, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what do you, what do you think of it as a journalist? Well, it's, it's certainly um, fun and exciting to be here. <laughs> I think um, I'm married to a doctor, and so we, we get each other. But, um, you know, we have our own community uh, of doctors, and it's a large community, but I think we're a little misunderstood by the general public because everyone thinks that we got rich easily. None of this is easy, and not all of us are at the financial endpoints that we wanted to be at. So it, it's great to have a radio station where we're understood. I hope our listeners share that view and continue to listen. Sarah, how do you think the health information that we read about in these journals is is uh, is it skewed? Is it accurate? I mean, is it are we really getting the real story? I mean, or are we or is there something is there some better way of getting the message out? No, we're not getting the whole story. I'm not sure. I'd have to think about the better method. I think it would have to be 
maybe a, a smaller venue, these monolithic trade papers that are funded by huge pharmaceutical companies don't tell you the whole story. I don't think I need to explain what the barriers are. It's kind of like presidential campaigns where front runners with a lot of money have an easier time. And now we're seeing the Netroots candidates who are sort of the grassroots people and how so I guess what I'm trying to say is the Internet could play a much bigger role in having maybe a smaller niche of medical journalism that's not completely dependent on large funding source like the pharmaceutical industry in the same way that certain candidates for president in 2004 and in 2008 have been able to tap into large numbers of smaller donors. On that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Sarah Lovinger, for coming into the studio today. We've been talking about medical journalism. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. 